0: Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast, presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, welcome back uh, and happy new year to everybody here listening into the Good Life EDU podcast. And I am super grateful to my good friend, Paul Dervazi, who is a teacher in Toronto, for joining me for really podcast two uh, that we've had a chance to record here together for the Good Life EDU uh, and Paul is a phenomenal educator, someone who uh, I've known for quite some time now and had a chance to collaborate with on the topic of games in education. He'll be modest about this, <laughs> but I'll say knows <laughs> as much as anybody when it comes to that topic. Uh, and I'm so grateful to have uh, Paul on here to join us for this conversation. So Paul, welcome. Well, thank you
1: very much for that generous introduction. And it's always a pleasure to sit here and speak with you. So I'm, I can't wait to get going.
0: Yeah, me too. And uh, just a little backstory: if you'd like to listen to our earlier podcast, you certainly can do that. We uh, touched upon a number of topics, and actually had uh, some people reach out and say, "Hey, would love to hear more from Paul, uh, particularly about some ARGs, which we're going to get into with this conversation." And uh, that is honestly how I came to to know Paul. I was fortunate enough to be at my very first ISTI when it was in Denver a few years ago, and I found myself. Uh, long story with that, but found myself in an ed camp where in the midst of that, uh, a small group broke out. Uh, as Steven Isaacs called anyone who wanted to be in a conversation about games over to a corner of the room. Uh, I'm glad that I followed that call and talked to Steven uh, for the first time. And as I started to share with him what I was hoping to do in my own classroom as an English teacher, Stephen Isaacs said, definitely reach out to Paul Dervazi so that you can learn a little bit more about some of the work that he's done with an alternate reality game called The Ward. So I did, and Paul and I really have been in collaboration ever since, and so I'm really grateful anytime we get a chance to chat. Uh, So let's just start there. We're going to dive in. We're going to talk ARGs. People that are not familiar with this, Paul, can you kind of set up um, what it means to teach this type of game? Because there's a lot of games in education or ways in which people think about games in education, so let's start there.
1: Sure, yeah. So ARGs in the real world, outside of education, are, are a very unusual uh, niche game, which started in large scale with, with the advertising industry. Actually, the, the, one of the biggest ARGs that was ever played was a promotional incentive for a film called AI, Artificial Intelligence, uh, Spielberg film. Uh, and essentially, they're these really unusual games that are played in the real world. Uh, they kind of blur the lines between reality and fiction and and they have really elaborate puzzles and people who don't know each other start working together and clues can be phone calls in the middle of the night and faxes that are going to appear at, at a certain place at a certain time and even even graffiti on a bathroom wall might be a clue in this massive sort of puzzle so um, and and the way that I was interested in them or how I arrived at them I actually didn't have a clue what an ARG was, what I was interested in is what would it look like to play a video game in the real world? If you could, if you could actually take the all the stuff that goes on in a video game and try try to externalize it to real life, what might that look like? And and it turns out it looks a lot like an ARG. <laughs> so, right. um, so that that was sort of my first baby step into that. And and uh, as I discussed in the previous show that we did together, uh, my first attempt was creating a simulation of the asylum from Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, which was called eventually the Ward game. I ran it four times. And, and I essentially took the basic story of Cuckoo's Nest. And I, and, I, and I noticed alarmingly some similarities between school life and asylum life. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of merge the two, turn my, you know, my students into patients. I became this kind of tyrannical nurse. And, and we had a lot of fun doing missions and, and doing a whole bunch of different sort of creative activities that in many ways brought the novel to life.
0: Yeah, and that uh, idea was what inspired me to Mm -hmm. be interested in this and uh, along with the thought of trying to help learners really be able to experience something similar to what the characters in the story were going through, even if that wasn't their background. So to be able to make that kind of text to self-connection from the experience that they're having in the moment in class, and I'm with you, it felt very much like a video game uh, (laughs) and tried to put that together. For the East Side game that I created at West Side High School, um, so you can see the connection there. Obviously, we had a choice novel unit of four different books. Uh, where students were going through a sci-fi piece, and so the thought was, how do we how do we try to create um, yes yeah, some empathy for these main characters that were going against this larger social structure uh, that seemed to be walking them potentially in a direction that they might not otherwise <laughs> want to go, just with their own inclinations, uh, and that was going to put them in some ethical dilemmas between right versus right, uh, and those tough decisions, which was something we were trying to key in on in the class as well, and so. I ended up making a fictional narrative because we had four different stories. So it was really tough to hold the one. Uh, and Paul was instrumental in being able to kind of talk me through the thinking that went into the design of that. Uh, and so hopefully get a chance to kind of maybe capture some of that in our pod here, and um, going through it. So, uh, Paul, can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Maybe the, uh, educational benefit that should be at the forefront of the, the thought process in designing these types of experiences.
1: Sure. Um, well, one is I think one of the greatest benefits is of course uh, engagement, right? That's one of the big reasons that so many of us are looking at games these days is that we're we're feeling that students are really fairly listless and 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 they seem to be so engaged. But so many of the wonderful things that are going on in the digital world and our classrooms tend to be lagging a little bit behind. And so when you introduce games into a classroom setting, whether it's you know it's playing Monopoly or setting up a large scale ARG. Um, you're primarily trying to engage your learner, to make them you know, the, the same way you would be in, in, in any game. And, and that engagement with their learning is obviously the, an, an ideal that we all strive for. Um, and then on many other levels, uh, you have also the idea that this, this experience, speaking now specifically to an ARG, is immersive. You are creating a, a world and inviting them to walk into that world and it's a very, very different experience to anything they've had in school up until that point, because all of a sudden the wheels have come off. There's no more classroom. There's no more teacher. There's no more rows. All of that is out the window. You're, you're in this bizarre experience. You're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. You know, it's your teacher, but man, he's holding that role pretty well for a long time. And you're starting to get a little worried. Uh, And, and so I think that, A big part of it is is taking them out of the routines and systems that they're used to and really having them think about many things that they take for granted because they've been reconfigured in sort of this new system. Um, So that's kind of the outward sort of, you know, benefits of this. But as you start digging in deeper, as we go back to this idea of this being a video game played in real life, there are all kinds of other ways to, that incentivize students. If you design an ARG that has, you know, points and levels and badges, you get all the benefits of that extrinsic motivation that students really like, uh, that, that people really like, uh, you know, uh, you can create collaborative and competitive opportunities like classrooms teachers do all the time we, we often have in class competitions or Uh, points where we have our students collaborate, but those are two, you know, fundamental principles of game design right games are tend to be either collaborative or or competitive and you can weave both of those into into these types of games. And then um, in terms of very practical learning one of the key successes of the word game i'd have to say 50% of the success had to do with giving students options. Where they could address the material of the novel that was at the core of the whole experience to any number of ways. They weren't being told to go home and do homework and do an assignment and blah, blah, blah. They're given a whole menu of possibilities in terms of how and when they decide to do this stuff, you know, there there, there wasn't at the ward game at no point did anything have to be due on the same day for everybody. Everybody was working on their own schedule, everybody was working on their own projects and missions and I'm going to dig into specifically how that was deployed. Um, and there was a great deal of empowerment. There was a great deal of, of kids being really excited to do things at the end of a long year, where typically I would start losing them. And they they ramped up rather than go the other way. And it was really powerful to see that if you create an effective system of engagement and really tap into play, because play is such a fundamental way that human beings learn. I mean, it was nature's way of, uh, of educating kids is through play that's why kids naturally draw to play you know all you have to do is put three or four kids together they're going to figure out they don't they don't even have to have a language in common they'll sit there and they'll they'll start kind of you know manipulating objects and communicating non-verbally and that's just nature's way of, of engaging or investing young human beings into their environment and into their culture and into their society. And we've kind of lost track of that a little bit. I think we see a lot of play being used in early education, but it, it kind of peters off and it turns very quickly into labor. <laughs> and, and and we see the industrial roots really showing themselves. And, and I, I think part of this, part of the, you know, the reason that you and I have both uh, done a lot of work with games is that we see... That the power of play holds out all the way through our lives. Even, you know, as an old man, I can say that I still learn a lot through play, and and I think it's something that we should continue to to incorporate in in our practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And then finally, um, there's a great deal of power in narrative. In storytelling and what we are doing with an ARG is we're immersing our students in a story and the story is not the story of the classroom. It's not the story of the teacher. It's not the story of the school. We create a completely different story and, and give them agency within that story. And, and I think it's fair to say that in all the ARGs that I've created and, and I think this is true for the one that you created as well that we don't ask our students to deliberately role play. Like I, you know, when I created my asylum world, I didn't tell my students, hey guys, okay, you're all, you're all, you know, inmates in an asylum now and you have to act a little bit eccentrically and not at all. Um, I, I think that that all, by creating the environment, by creating this really bizarre world where they're getting emails in the middle of the night and these weird videos of a tyrannical nurse giving them instructions, they, they don't have to role play anything, they just have to respond to the environment, and what I found remarkable is that by putting my students in a situation that in some way parodied the situation that the patients found themselves in this asylum, this would be for the ward game, of course, that they started behaving in the same way that the patients did in the novel in an unscripted way, which I thought was really remarkable. Like once you really turn on the screws and become very authoritarian, the students start getting very naturally rebellious. And there were all these small rebellions that were occurring within the game, which is exactly what occurs with the patients in the novel who are put under an oppressive regime. So I think those 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 point to very generally a lot of the benefits of this type of work. Of course it's it can be a very difficult thing to imagine if you haven't seen it in action. And what I hope is over the course of our conversation today I can give very practical examples of things that teachers can hold on to and use in their own practice.
0: Yeah, and it's so Let's just say right now, this is really an intricate thing to design and to consider and to roll out Uh, and we're uh, hopefully going to, through this conversation support other people's thinking and encourage them to potentially look into this further as both of us uh, have done and and, um, seen the benefits of which is why we're here advocating for it Uh, and. I guess I would say with this, in addition to it being like a video game, and I and I think that um, some of us, when we hear video games, we think of maybe original Mario Brothers, where it's uh, <laughs> kind of this simplistic, you know, eight-bit <laughs> like uh, scenario playing out. This this is so focused, that, and I like that you brought it in there on narrative. Uh, mm-hmm. And both of us are English teachers, and there is a certain edu theater that comes with this. And and you you kind of started there earlier. As well, uh, that this is something that the the students, though they don't necessarily have to play in a role, you as a teacher take on that persona of a character or a set of characters, uh, and it's really pretty fun to be in that that situation. But it certainly breaks the norms. Oh yeah, absolutely, and you know, and and and
1: it's important to to remember the power of storytelling. I, I think we we if if we think back to our tribal past when we were sitting around the campfire, the chief kind of resource for our culture, for our tribe, was storytelling. It wasn't just a form of entertainment. I mean, I think we tend to mistake stories as, as merely a form of entertainment these days, because, you know, that's 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 our chief way of consuming entertainment is through storytelling. Uh, or storytelling is this chief form of entertainment that we consume. Uh, but it had a very, very important social role. It was in an era before writing, it was a way of of creating a a storage system for our collective memories, right? All of our heroes were celebrated in stories. All the dangerous places that children should avoid were hidden in stories. The, The patterns of agriculture and the seasons and when you glean and what mistakes you made and when you should plant the seeds and all of these things are all woven into stories. So they're in integral to really understanding how the universe works from your perspective who you are in that universe what your identity is because you are the stories that you tell and the story structure is such that for whatever reason the human brain uses that structure that kind of beginning middle and end to put it very very uh, simplistically structure um, that seems to kind of resonate with us we tend to remember stories better than if we just have loose information that's not in that kind of story framework and so um it is it, the stories are so fundamental to who we are and and if you were to pause to think even today we spend most of our day living in stories we're either telling stories about what happened that morning or what we're going to do the next day or listening to somebody tell us but then we go home and we throw on netflix and what you have are infinite stories or you play a video game and most video games have narrative or stories or you're on social media and they're even calling social media stories stories right the little circular thing at the top so Um, And what that goes to show is that kind of the centralness that stories and narrative had in our past in a much simpler life has now kind of amplified. And we see that same kind of centralness that story has, but now manifest through all these different channels of information and all these different ways of being, but we're still tapped in. But what's interesting is, even though you have stories that are told about school and you have of course in literature classes you're in history classes you know you're constantly kind of circulating stories I found it interesting that we never actually create a narrative structure around learning. You know, classroom life, the story is you come in, your teacher takes attendance, they go through, you know, their lesson plan, the bell rings, and you walk out. And that was the story of the class. And then, and and I was becoming more and more interested in exploring how can you create narrative events within the classroom structure. And an ARG is exactly that. It allows you to kind of Um, encapsulate learning and encapsulate the dynamics and systems of learning within a story structure. And you and I both have used stories that align well with our institutional realities, right? As I said earlier, the asylum story very much resembles, you know, my students wear uniforms, the patients in the novel wear uniforms. You know, you have an authority figure that runs everything, much like the teacher is the authority figure that runs everything. There's a desire to create a degree of uniformity in how the patients are treated and dealt with, and that's exactly what happens in schools. Um, If somebody doesn't behave, you either punish them or medicate them, and that's exactly what happens in an institution (laughs) and, sadly, what happens in schools. So um, the asylum story worked very well and synthesized well with my environment. And I know from the ARG that you created, much of the story was based on the reality of your school and your community and the teachers in those communities. And you kind of bent that reality and mutated that reality. But the core was still there. And yeah. I think, sorry, go ahead.
0: Um, I was going to say, yeah. I, and that it worked because science fiction, which we were studying, we actually did an activity prior to starting the game that spoke to this a little bit is, not necessarily based on uh, you know sometimes when people think science fiction they think Star Wars and they think this kind mm-hmm. of futuristic space adventure or a long galaxy long time ago, far far away thing, uh, where it's more so about taking a, an element of the present and sort of playing that out to an extreme. and should that happen, the dangers that go along with it. Uh, and so with that as kind of a, a genre, structure within which all of four of our novels were going through, yeah, the thinking really w- was right there to say, well, what if this were school? And what if we take some of these, the over-testing, uh, the, the the structured, you know, lack of creativity, what if those elements were to be amplified to a degree and and valued by the system as such to where it really um, undermined the individuality of each student mm. and their voice? Uh, and so we, we tried to recreate create or try to create that and throw students into that exaggeration uh with the Eastside game uh and and let it play out from there. And it was cool. It, it definitely I'm, I'm with you. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and,
1: I, and I'll, you know, as we both know, it works, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 that was the remarkable part, is that you're never going to get 100% buy-in, and I never did. I ran the game for four years, and I usually had about 85% buy-in. But anytime you're hitting over 80, you're in very good shape, <laughs> right? I mean uh you know you're never going to draw everybody in and you know some people are going through things in their lives they're not into games whatever the case may be but i felt that the degree of dedication and passion by so many of the students that I, in some cases, I'd never seen before in any other, you know, these are kids that I taught multiple times. And, and, you know, in a few cases, um, you know, the kid is at the back of the class, he's not really that into it. And all of a sudden, you change the system. And this kid became the hardest working kid in the class, right, just empowered and wanting more and creative. And, and, and it you know, and, and it really made me realize in a very, very practical way, something that we all know as teachers that we're not servicing our wider community, we always let kids slip by because of our inability to have all the energy and time that we'd like to have for each of our students and sometimes there's some hard cases, but it became so apparent to me, not just that kids that had been languishing at the back of the class and not connecting with the system and you know just kind of getting their way through but it, what it showed me is but when you change the system, you can actually bring those kids back in you know and and it made me sad to think how many kids have we lost because we have this very narrow system and this very narrow way of thinking about school that in some ways is almost violent towards some kids, that it, that it, it, it's just a way of making them feel badly about themselves and diminishing them and, and, and kicking them over and over again. And, and that's exactly what we have to work against, because it's not just a charity for the child. It's not just, you know, oh, we feel bad because Johnny's had a rough ride at school and we wanted to make him feel better. It's because Johnny could actually be an incredibly, you know, effective contributor to society if Johnny was allowed to be Johnny in the full expression of Johnny, right? And we as a society society are losing good people that could make a big difference because school kicks them down because they don't fall into like the testing exam scheduled way of thinking which is a very particular way of being and and the nice thing is i'm not saying games are the solution either i'm just saying like you change the system you harness a whole different kind of learner so maybe education systems should look at variety at, at deploying in different ways to try to net as many different types of minds as possible
0: uh, and that that speaks for everything from the experience of an ARG to the nuanced missions, or thinking about kind of having some ownership over the progression and what resources you seek out. And, and so certainly, that is a as a fundamental point <laughs> behind this. Uh, it, it permeates all aspects of of an ARG. Uh, and something you shared earlier there about like getting that 85% uh, buy-in, one of the things, I'm not even sure you remember, if you recall this, but you sort of shared with me as I was wrapping my mind around how the heck do we do this? <laughs> like, how, how am I going to create this thing? As you said, it's really imperative that that the students have the option to buy in or not, that essentially you can you can play the game or you cannot play the game, but you're not being told that you have right. to play the game. And I thought that was one of the hardest things creatively to try to conceptualize was how how do I do that for I had you know probably I had 151 students at the time but in that subject that course I should say in that course I had probably around 65 70 students and so so how do I you know invite all of them to take part in this experience while maintaining the theatrical aspects mm-hmm. of it um, and it was it was interesting so what was your you spoke that to me at one point in time so right how so did, how did that play out for you with the ward I guess I'll play off of that
1: yeah so so the first time I ran it there there was no out everybody was in right and and I didn't tell the students this this game was on I gave them absolutely no warning I just came into class one morning I was a completely different person than they'd ever experienced before um I was unpleasant I was domineering uh, I, I took on this, uh, you know, authoritarian role, some kids thought it was funny, some kids were just confused. Um, and then and then that's when the, the whole thing started. And then you know that there's a long story there about how that whole game played out. And there were kids that were a little uncomfortable, some kids that didn't know I was joking, and I had to kind of talk to them out of that and I realized that I had to be very careful with how I managed this whole thing because there were no there was no scaffolding there was no template for this and it was breaking all the walls down and some kids were not comfortable with that so uh, I read Jane McGonigal's book uh, reality's broken one thing she mentioned and this is after I ran the first game is that you know all games should be voluntary and then I thought you know that's something that I should really integrate into this so the second time I ran it I gave them some hint as to what was going to happen and said, look, if this, if the uncertainty of this structure is not comfortable for you, or you're, you at any point want to press the eject button, we can talk about a parallel project you can take that will also be fun and interesting in a way that's meaningful to you. And you will check in with each other and I'll give you periods to work on this. And these are seniors, these are grade 12. So they're pretty independent, they're pretty responsible. And it worked out beautifully. Every year, I'd have two or three kids that, for whatever reason, they decided that it wasn't for them, and they would go off and do these parallel projects. And uh, you know, I've had I had very rare, but I had one or two that maybe a week into the game they they weren't feeling it or they they had had some kind of a negative experience. And I always had uh, an alternative for them to continue. And so that way, anybody who was in the game was voluntarily in the game. And as I said, fundamental to all of this, to a lot of this philosophy as we're going to discuss is choice, right? Not just choices offered to succeed within the game, but the choice of playing or not playing. And choice is so important. It's so empowering. And, you know, one of the successes, and I'll segue into the mission system that we used for the ward game, because I think that's a really valuable takeaway. Um, one of the, you know, it evolved a bit over time, but the best way I can describe it is that, that the, bit, the most a common way to make points in the word game was to request what was called a prescription. I called, I tried to keep within the clinical reality of of the asylum. So instead of calling them missions, I called them prescriptions. And what you would do is I, I published, you know, 12 categories of prescriptions. It could be law. It could be medicine. It could be creative writing. It could be photography. It could be music. Any one of these categories. And if you were a student who wanted to make points You would write the big nurse, I kind of hacked our email system to create a whole bunch of fake accounts, another good tip for teachers creating (laughs) immersive experiences, you can use email to create a whole bunch of personalities, and they would write the big nurse and say, big nurse, I want a prescription in the realm of law, right? So I had all of these kind of missions uh, that I'd collected and designed over the years kind of in reserve, and I would send them a law mission and it would outline what the requirement was, the time, and the time they had is hours, not days or weeks. So you have 76 hours to research a case where the government has created a large uh, construction project on indigenous land, which is something that happens in the novel, but I wanted them to explore that in terms of our Canadian reality, where our government has done exactly the same thing, right? So they would have the option to do this, and if, if they received this prescription or this mission, and they were not interested, They just have to say, not interested. I'd like another prescription in law and then i would send them another one and uh, and then i'd say you know what law's not as appealing as i thought it was give me a prescription in creative writing and then i send them a prescription in creative writing and finally they're like yes i want to do this i want to create a dating profile for you know mcmurphy and i accept it and i have 72 hours to create it all the, all the, the rubrics built in the prescriptions or uh, sorry the description of everything they have to do is built in and they run off with that and and what was remarkable about this is that the quality of the work that they produce was so high, they were completely on their schedule. I mean, you could sit there at home and do nothing for a week. And then all of a sudden, or you're working on your AP exams or you're working on something else. And then all of a sudden you have some free time and you say, I'm going to write the big nurse and knock off submissions or some prescriptions and and build up my score. Um, And because the system worked, I couldn't possibly mark, all the stuff that was coming in i mean it was such a and that was a big problem early on and i and i kind of fixed it over the years and i would always give them feedback or acknowledge it um but what i started doing is uh you know the second time i ran it is the expectation was that whatever you did would be at the highest level of the rubric. It was either, it was an all or nothing pass fail type system where if you didn't meet the highest level of the rubric, it would be sent back to you until it was at the highest level of the rubric. So it really pushed for mastery in the end. And when they hit that level, they would get full reward, whether it was points or money or bonus cards or a combination of the three. And, and what was remarkable, this is crazy. I mean, I must have had over easily a thousand different things sent back to me over the years. You know, artifacts, assignments, written assignment. I mean, I have, I have, I kept it all. I have like files and files of all the things the students sent back. I don't think I ever had to give it back to the student to improve it more than three times of those thousands. Um, because they, they were doing what they loved. The guys that were into music were doing music stuff. The guy, and I say guys because I teach all boys. Um, the guys that were doing uh, you know, Minecraft stuff were into Minecraft and, and it was all related to the novel. Everything they were asked to do in some way directly or indirectly had something to do with the cuckoo's nest. So, so they were always addressing issues, themes, ideas and characters in the novel but always through a way that was meaningful to them and that system you don't need to have a word game to have something like that as a teacher i mean that should just you and you don't need fancy software i mean i did have to keep track of my email closely it was a lot of work I'm, I, had, I had to be there all the time and what i what i did is i gave them the one thing that I changed again the second year is, as opposed to it being a 24 hour seven thing, I was open to mission business from nine to nine because I really wanted some time to myself. And so at 9 p.m., I could shut down my email and then and then go back. And obviously, this is not something that's necessarily sustainable all the time. I couldn't do this all year long. But for a three week, four week period, it was worth putting in the extra effort. And I'd like to share what there's there was like, you know, just some ideas about how this stuff works. So one kid uh, accepted an architectural mission where he had to draw the floor plan of the asylum as described in the novel. So he had to go to the novel and kind of read, to figure out, okay, there's the day room. This is where the, and then he, he designed a really cool floor plan where, you know, he lays out how he envisions this asylum, this ward in the asylum was laid out. So he sends me the completed floor plan within a certain amount of time he it's perfect so he gets his full reward he gets his points he gets his his his, his money and he gets his, we have an internal economy and he gets a bonus card then another kid chooses a mission where he wants to write a song about the novel's main character so he flies with that I, I get this unbelievable song I didn't even know the kid was musical and I'm like wow he did this it was crazy and then a third kid takes a mission and none and sorry one thing is that this whole game it's very much like fight club nobody's allowed to talk about what they're doing and people are kind of ratting each other out and there's a whole kind of meta game of not talking about the game which is really funny so a lot of kids don't know what anybody else is doing and everybody's doing something different and very few people know so everybody's kind of working in these kind of silos and they don't really know what's going on with other people or what other people's experiences are like so when I get this floor plan from one kid or a song from the other they don't actually know what the other kid is doing so I get a third kid who accepts a mission to create a Minecraft model of the uh, of the ward's kind of layout and I gave him the floor plan that the first kid had made and (laughs) say use this floor plan and build it into a Minecraft model and then take me on a tour of that you know of that space and I want you using this song as the background music for that tour. So you have three kids and I call it blind collaboration because they don't know they're collaborating. The guy who makes the map thinks it's over. I'm just going to hand this in and it's going to disappear into the big nurse's you know, office and I'll never see it again. The kid writes the song. He's probably going to share it with his friends and family because it was an awesome song and then that's it. He gives it to his teacher, never expects to see it again. But how blown away were they when this incredible Minecraft kid puts together this absolutely phenomenal model um, based on the floor plan and accompanied by the music, and it all just comes together really beautifully. And everybody's doing what they love, and they're working together. And 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 it felt like this is kind of like what school should be, right? It's kind of fun. It's unexpected. It's surprising. And that's just one of the ways that, that, that they were engaged at the board game. And these are the possibilities that exist within the ARG space and using
0: game learning i love it i love it and i love uh just kind of learning you know you and i have talked about the board game obviously a number of times before and every time i hear you get into it i learn a little more in the nuance of how it all played out and uh and I, w- I would agree with you too that uh maybe this will springboard a conversation a little bit about assignments and and maybe even to some of those tech tools but similar to what you did just to, and i'll be brief uh with mine For us, we had kind of this authoritarian as a principal figure, but instead of that being me in the classroom, uh, I have one of my best friends uh, that I taught with at Westside as a theater teacher. And so he kind of took on that persona and my background is really more in video. Uh, going into this. I was at the time really working on instructional video production uh, and I asked my good friend if he would um, play that character. And so I I wrote it out really as a script um, and tried to do as video games tend to do now, where there's a little bit of actual video that you don't have any agency in, you watch and it sets up the next place where you get to play. (laughs) And so uh, I recorded, I think it was seven or eight different segments with him um where the narrative sort of played out and so every class period started with an announcement from our principal uh which was he him on there sort of talking about this big state test that we were getting ready for and that was kind of his whole mission was for us to earn as much state funding as we could get from our test scores being as good as they could be and that that's where our emphasis is going to lie in our training to get ready for those. And, and there is something to be said for some of those things. But I also wanted to, with this game, kind of go against that and talk about individuality and voice. And, and like you're saying, all those choice elements. Uh, and so my character in the classroom was just to be a teacher within that system. But then I was also this cloaked figure, uh, mystery, mystery with a capital E at the end, right? <laughs> right <play> the <laughs> perfect. End. There That's you go. Perfect. Uh, to and I had some videos actually shot with some of our journalism kiddos. They helped me out. Um, we went into this like theater closet and we had this weird lighting. And I actually when I edited, I used the uh, jigsaw voice module like thing, so it changed how I sounded. Um, but I, there was this teacher that was subvertive to, to everything that was going on and was trying to kind of undermine that and expose that and, and promote, you know, individuality and those things. So, so anyway, um, there's a lot of video content that was out there. And the way that I I sort of keyed all this off was that I uh, created a Google account for each of these different individuals, like for the principal. (laughs) And so that actually came through uh, with uh, his name. His name is Jeremy Stahl. And so he was Jeremiah Stalin was his his perfect. Right. Uh, And so he emails them the day before the game starts and they have no clue who this individual is, why they're, you know, and he, he's so excited for us to ramp up for the uh, CPT exam that's coming up uh, in three months. And the kids are like, I have no idea <laughs> like who this person is, what the CPT test is, why am I receiving this? Probably thought it was spam. And they show up for class and our classroom was definitely rarely if ever in rows and it yeah you know really organized and, and structured and like you said i'm at the front um probably as cold to them as anything you know no no music playing not greeting them at the door uh and they jump right into a video i, I told them you know this is a video from our principal uh that you know he'd like to kind of speak to what we're going to do in our preparation for the big test that's coming up And that all played out. Uh, I do want to key in on another point that you shared, I guess, as I set this up, that it's great to weave that with things that are actually historically based uh, so that it feels more realistic, right? The whole idea is for this to be immersive. And so I took some No Child Left Behind footage and sort Ah. of wove some of that in um, to the principal's kind of kickoff announcement. Uh, And that first day, and and then I'll um, kind of throw it back to you here, students then were told to start reviewing for the test and so they went to this um uh google classroom that the principal had created and they were supposed to take this first review and as they started to take it they got to a question where it looked like it had been scrambled and there was i i mean it took i put like 75 or so different choices for this multiple choice thing in this google assessment but it was all to the same youtube link and so it was so funny to sit back and watch them start to take this earnestly, right? Because they're, they're like you're saying, students, they're used to being in school. And when they're told to do something, they do it <laughs> most of the time. And they get to this question and they don't know really what to press. And so curiosity eventually gets you, right? And you jump out to this YouTube video and it's of my character with the jigsaw voice, like asking them, like, do you want to, you know... Um, that school should be more about individual, and school should be more about this. And if you're curious, you know, click on this link to see how deep the rabbit hole goes, kind of thing that was in the caption underneath that first video. So you have to commit to the second video at that point. And when you got there, uh, it prompted you then because we had selected books from our four choice choice novels prior to the start of um, you know this first day of the experience. And I had found four teachers in the building to each um, take an item that they were to give to any student that came to them during that day and said a certain word. And that was all those teachers really knew and they're supposed to be coy about it. So the video back to the classroom, students would go to the first one, go to the second one. And then the second one, because there was this is too much but there's some ways to kind of break them into which novel they were going to be picking up. They were then told to ask to use the restroom. And during that time to sneak off to another teacher to say this password to them and then and follow instructions from there i love it and and so the first first student gets to it hand goes up goes can i go to the bathroom and i go yeah and then we sit and then another student does it and then another student does it, and before long every student in my class is asked to use the restroom and we have an open (laughs) campus now so it's important to kind of say that it's not uncommon for students to be traversing the hallways or teachers to be available um but then when they went there they they were just they were like the teachers were supposed to act a little spooked, like they were in on it, but they didn't really wanna get into a conversation uh, in public about it. And so they, they passed an item. And so if it was Fahrenheit, they got a fireman. Uh, and if it was um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they got a little thing that had the number 42 or Dude. whatever on there. <laughs> and they were told to go take it to where we normally pick up our, our novels from. So we have like a checkout desk um, where we check in and out books um, really at any time. And I had pre-wrapped every, one of these books and ask the person at that desk to hide them <laughs> um, underneath her desk. And so when the student just brought over this little token, she would take it and know because it was a fireman which one to give. And she also <laughs> sort of looked around and, and um, funneled to them this banned book as we started to like label it. And having wrapped them, I put a Google Classroom code on the outside that gave them the mission list essentially from uh, my character. You know that that was going to ask them to do some things that were uh, going to help promote things counter to what the principal was promoting, um, and I'll give you some examples with that. Because you were talking prescriptions uh, in our game, though, I had two teammates who were teaching the same course, and so we had to have the same assignment or or very very similar. You know, we don't did not want to deviate from what our kind of uh, expectations were for some of those formative assignments. And so one of them, and you'd, you'd said, "Hey, decorate the classroom. It'd be really great if you." Could, and my theater buddy gave me five um, different panels for the walls, like theater panels. And I had um, I gave two dozen donuts to the art club, and they they made these really drab looking like classroom walls. Uh, and so one of the things, one of the missions, for example, was we were supposed to, in English class, we were supposed to do annotations and keep a running total of those, like as we went through you know our reading. Well. My character asked them to advocate for lines from their book that they thought were empowering or or that spoke to them in a certain way by graffitiing those on the walls of the classroom. And so students, instead of annotating on a piece of paper, started actually having to stand up and physically write these things on these theater panel walls uh and it was really inspiring to walk into the room and just see it caked with all the like quotes that uh we ended up you know they used for their essay much later after the narrative was over but um yeah there's a lot more that goes into that too but that was sort of the kickstarter i guess and some of the assignments uh and i throw it back to you and 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 say let's have that chat let's talk assignments let's maybe talk the repurposing of tech tools. Uh, like I was talking about Google Classroom, both my character and fake principal's character had that. Uh, where How's that all hit your brain, I guess?
1: So the uh, first thing I'd love to say is that, you know, one, one commonality between both of the projects that we did is that not only is the structure and deployment of this thing very different than anything that they normally do in school. I mean, it's, it's very different, but they're both kind of critiques of the education system as a whole right i mean we're <laughs> we're 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 actively kind of you know protesting here we're saying you know this world of standardized tests and no child left behind and sitting in rows and you know th- these games not only show the path forward to say, how do we break out of these templates, but simultaneously are very deliberately critiquing where we're coming from and where we have to go from, right?
0: Oh, and I I want to just interject for a moment and say, I had one student that came up to me outside of class afterwards and found herself in tears. And she said, I don't know what to do with this. She said, I naturally would listen to the principal. She goes, I, I would totally just do whatever I was told to do and would fall through that hundred percent. She goes, I feel like the game is setting me up to try to not do that. And so I'm like stuck and don't know how to react. And she started to like tear up and, and it's the only time, and this is probably terrible to say the only time a student's cried in class that I actually felt like <laughs> a little, because yes, <laughs> yeah, right. it was that right versus right decision. It's that, it's that ethical dilemma that, that i was hoping and that's the take right yes it's fun yes it's engaging yes it's a cool theme but like how do we like really start to ask them to recognize it in a science fiction piece in a dystopia that individual has a heavy burden of making the decision to go against the system right so uh, back to your point about yeah. like, we're both it, kind of it's... playing off systems yeah
1: And it's critical thinking at every level, because we're not just asking them to think critically about the books that they're reading, about, you know, the the material that we're deploying, but they're thinking critically about the institution that's shaping them right? Mm -hmm. That, that, and that means that you've got to think about yourself a little bit more and how you operate within that institution and what that institution does to you. And that emotional rupture that you saw was the moment where she's confronting her institutional reality, right? And, and she's questioning it and it's causing this kind of collision inside of her, which I would say is a very positive thing, right? Tears aside, it's a very positive thing because to walk blindly through life and not question the institutions that have power over you is a big mistake, right? That's, so democracy dies. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I think that's that's super, super important um, in terms of the practical element. Um, one thing I'm not a programmer, you know, I, I'm not a video game designer. Um, and I think what was really empowering is in this day and age, you can be pretty much an amateur at anything and get away with it. Right. I, I, <laughs> it's true. Computers compensate for our shortcomings. Right. You're not a professional journalist, but you can have a blog and you can tweet. Uh, you're not a professional cab driver, but you can have Uber. You know, you're not a professional hotel manager, but you can do Airbnb, right? You're So, um, and, and then similarly, you can design games, even online games, without being a programmer because we have all these unbelievable tools at our disposal. So, um, one thing that I've kind of come to through, I, I've designed a few ARGs and, and sort of other types of games and in every case, I've I've tended to use tools that teachers might use in their practice otherwise. You know, the Google Suite, the learning management system, email applications, all of these, but not for their intended uses, right? A great example, a great recent example is lots of teachers, and it really ramped up over COVID, are creating escape rooms using Google Forms. You can also use uh, PowerPoint to create an escape room, right? I used email uh, to, to create different personalities. I'd create a Google account for one person, a Google account for the other. Similarly, I use social media. Um, a big part of the word game, I, I, I ran it from 2013 to 2017. So Facebook was still fairly popular with young kids at the time. Now they've, they've fallen off the cliff and, and, and they only get Facebook to keep in touch with their grandmother as far as I can tell. Um, but we use social media and not in the way that social media was meant to be used. So I had a big nurse Twitter account where they could actually get clues and missions by checking in on her Twitter account. She had a big nurse kind of Facebook page. And what was fascinating about the Facebook page is at the time, the kids were pretty regularly in Facebook. So what Facebook allowed me to do was to turn the game into a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, geographic, meaning it didn't matter where they were. And I could do something like I would just, you know, 10 o'clock at night, I'm bored, I'll write in. McMurphy whistles a tune in chapter seven. What is the significance of the tune that he whistles? The first five good answers will get five points each. Within 10 minutes, I had all of these great answers (laughs) populating the Facebook page, right? And instant feedback, right? And they're they're getting their points and there's actually debates going on about why that's right or before I kind of weigh in. So all of a sudden it instantly generates dialogue and conversation about the novel at 10 o'clock on a Thursday night when they would be doing something else for sure, right? One of my funniest, the funniest ones was I discovered that the main character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, his last name is McMurphy. And I discovered there was a pub not too far from our school called McMurphy's. And I put a mission at like eight o'clock at night. It said the first four students to take a picture of themselves in front of McMurphy's and post it on this thread will receive, you know, X reward, right? (laughs) I swear within 15 minutes, I had five (laughs) pictures of these kids standing in front of pubs, right? But then I realized that two of them were photoshopped. They 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 found a picture of the pub on Google Earth and photoshopped their image in front of it, right? In a really bad way where it was meant to be discovered, but it was really funny. So what you know, these are these are mild examples. There's lots of different stuff we use social media for, but social media is not meant to be used to create a game, but it's a really powerful tool to create games with. And since I've used, you know, Instagram to create games, I've I've used Twitter, I've used Facebook, I've used Snapchat. And all of them have unique features that if you think about them a little differently, can be turned into either puzzles or into platforms for communication that that, you know, within the kind of narrative of the game, you can create social media accounts based on characters. Like a, a character may live entirely on Twitter, whatever the case may be. Um, I've also used, not for the ARGs, but I've used Google Earth to create kind of an escape room type situation where you're physically moving through a map and you encounter different locations that have clues that are password protected. And then you can can access the passwords through the physical location on Google Earth that'll take you to a website or to some other location to advance the story or, or whatever the case may be. So I think that there, there, there's lots of practical uses. I, I also, the, the mission system, the prescription system that I described earlier, was all run through our internal email server. I've used, you know, depending on the learning management system you use, um, some of them actually have built in badging systems. I know that PowerSchools Haiku does, that you can actually create badges within the system, you can create really interesting web pages, you can create users uh, within the system that are fictional. So a fictional character could reside in your learning management system. They could have their own email address and then they have their own social media site. And for all intents and purposes, in the world that we live in, there are many people we know only through social media, websites, and email. So we're only we're reconstituting the reality that we're already living in anyway. And all of this to say that, that it's, you know, it's a bit of a mindset, right? It's a DIY mindset where you're taking all of these easily available tools, it's like the maker mindset, but sort of in a digital realm. And, and it's just how you creatively fit them all together. And, and what's really nice is that an ARG structure, it gives you kind of an umbrella. So, you know, the story of an asylum in the case of, of the word game, or or um, or the story of this kind of totalitarian school and, and what you were running at your school. But within that, you, know, you can create an escape room, you can create a puzzle, you can even have like a Sudoku contest that will somehow fit into that. So it's very modular and it gives you a lot of freedom to experiment with different tools and different kind of mini games within the larger game structure. And it's, it's remarkable that when a teacher starts thinking about how they can use these tools a little differently, which is not something we're asked to do, right? Like we're usually just, okay, this is what this ed tech tool is for and that's what we use it for. And we're usually so busy and so pressed that we would not think to use them all that differently, right? How would you use Flipgrid differently for a game, right? That's a good challenge. I'd love to see teachers kind of rise to that occasion. How can we take the Flipgrid structure and create something completely different, something that's playful, uh, something that that is unique, something that is artistic, right? I, I think art and creativity are at the source of all of this. Um, I've run also another ARG called Blind Protocol. And it was basically in a nutshell, Um, I have a colleague named John Fallon, who also creates ARGs and he teaches in Connecticut. And we'd met at a conference years ago and talked about kind of collaborating on an ARG. And we decided to create one that looked at, at issues of privacy, surveillance, and data. You know, we're very concerned about, you know, it's really coming to the fore now, how we give up data, how our data is being used and how we have very little protection or understanding about this stuff. And schools really have to do a better job of of preparing us for this digital reality because we're all moving blindly into the dark while we're being mined for all kinds of information that will inevitably come back to haunt us so this whole game was designed to create kind of digital awareness about best practices with passwords with safety with the kind of information you leave on social media and you know in a nutshell We had each of our students go for a week-long kind of program. It was ARG. It was immersive. They got launched in exactly the same way with this weird classroom video that goes haywire and starts asking them to check their email. And they all have emails from this mysterious entity, and it puts them on this kind of treasure hunt around the school that reveals a package of information. So this goes on for about a week, and then a week into the game, they realize that all the stuff that they've been doing has been done by another group of students somewhere else in the world, and they don't know where. And at that point, the game becomes who can uncover the identity of the other team first. And they start kind of producing artifacts like brochures and posters, and they get paid for these artifacts in, in artificial Bitcoins. And then we have a catalog where you can shop for protocols using these Bitcoins to open windows into the reality of your opponent. And a lot of these were inspired by CIA tools that were leaked by Edward Snowden. And we found them and we kind of gave them similar names and we kind of played into the whole NSA thing a little bit. And so, for example, one of them would be you would force your opponent to take the picture of a street sign, which is two kilometers within your school or two miles within your school right so that's not going to tell you anything like if it's smith street there's a hundred thousand smith streets in the united states and canada right my students made the mistake of taking the picture of a street called harvard street and guess what there's only one harvard street in all of north america <laughs> so hey the, the, the john's team in connecticut like as soon as they found harvard they were within two miles of my school and then after that they just had to kind of they deployed Another one called a drone protocol where you where like this drone flies over the school and takes a picture and it's totally erased of all information. There's no street names, no school names, but you see the actual shape of the school from the air. So all they had to do is take that drone picture and triangulate with the two-mile radius around the street sign until they found the building that matched. And then they got us, right, in one of the games. So those kinds of things. And and in the end, my guys, we didn't reveal who won until the end because we didn't want either team to stop working. And my guys uncovered their team because of information that was left on social media by their students. And really what that revealed is, look, you're making your information available and these complete strangers in another part of the world managed to find you based on information that you left on Facebook. So it very much reflects kind of the... The, the learning that we want them to have from this experience about their privacy and about protecting yourself online is actually fundamental to the gameplay. It's not just content that you're managing, right? And that's, that, that's really an effective way to do this. So within that game, we had treasure hunts. We had uh, we had We had one mission where they had to get from point X to point Y in the school, but not be found by a single security camera. So that would make them aware of the surveillance that was going on inside of the school, right? Like to what degree are they being surveyed? So they had, and it was designed in such a way that it would be very hard to cross the campus without being found by a camera and then what we did is once they completed the mission we reviewed the security footage on all the school cameras to see if they appeared <laughs> anywhere and 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 you know it's just again were security cameras used to build a game no are we should we be encouraging our kids to be able to avoid security cameras <laughs> probably not right but but it's just a matter of rethinking your environment rethinking how how you can use what's right under your nose right and uh and and i think that that's a great way to envision your practice and to invigorate your your profession and you know when you and i talk about this stuff we're we're delighted we're we i mean we both have suffered for these games both of us yeah. have suffered i know we have i know <laughs> i have suffered a lot of stress when i'm putting this together but that's also kind of inversely proportional to the pride and joy I feel when it's over. Like you put all your work up front. And when we talk about it, it's like we had fun playing, right? You and I played, we played with our students, right? And, and, and it was such a joy and, and play is not always like, you know, sometimes play is hard work, you know, building a snow fort is hard work, you know, I, it's backbreaking work. But, but you do it because it's playful and you love it, right? And, and, and I think that's a really important part of all of this.
0: That is just so true and it, you know, as you were talking earlier about employing these different tech tools or things like a breakout EDU, I I remember there was a point where I sort of listed the different things i could potentially utilize and do like flipgrid ar love that if you are interested in that as a tool you know and, and i had all these off the side and as the narrative was going along i started just cross off and decide where i was going to bring things from my tech tool strategies repertoire in to meet some of these different pieces and uh it was really fun in thinking through all of that. Because uh, the students with with that wrapped up book that I referenced earlier, there was also a hall pass in there. And so the whole game really was based upon they had to find the information to accurately fill out the hall pass, which would take them to the office. And when they turn that in, they could get a to a lockbox that if they had the code for it, they could get into that, which... Would give them two phones, which are both old phones of mine. <laughs> One of those had a code on it that they had to be able to open the, you know, the four-digit lock on on an iPhone, for example, and then email a video that was on that phone to themselves because there was a student who had been, who had caught the principal doctoring the test to get more money for you know, the school, uh, and he had then been uh, expelled and they had his phone still at school locked up. And and this was something they didn't know, right? It's not like we're spending class time like laying this all out for them. But as they finished every mission, so we didn't really have the, the in-game economy that you have, but in as he finished every mission, they were given a clue that took them to someplace in the building. So this is back to your point of in the real world, real space, rethink how you're seeing your surroundings. And they would solve something that they would then send over to our, our mystery character, and he would give them another piece of that pass. And it got to a point where at the end, I think three groups cuz students started to work together on it. it 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 they went away from just sort of independently collaborating to really making that something that they could all celebrate you know when they, when they want so three different groups ended up getting to the end of it uh, but along the way yeah there that student that was expelled the only way they could talk to that person was through you know something digital and so I certainly had a twitter account for that character uh they couldn't talk to Mr E directly and so Mr E actually held some evening optional they were book talks, essentially, <laughs> but I, I wanted to grill them about what they were reading. and and if they wanted to show up for that, they could get a clue. Uh, an additional clue. And I had students just voluntarily jumping into today's meet, which is what I was using at the time, or different you know chats to have have book talks in the evenings. Uh, and it was really, I think one of the best parts of it though know, is that some of those tools and strategies don't have to be digital, right? To make it immersive exactly. it needs to be exactly. involved.
1: Yes.
0: And so one of the things that was super fun for me was I, from the start of the year, had created a logo for... Mystery's uh group was called The Awakening, and I made a logo for The Awakening. And I'd taken and printed off colored copies of The Awakening's logo and laminated those with a word on the back. And there were five words that I needed for this phrase that they were going to need in November when they were playing the game. And I put those in five uh, classrooms around the, the, the school that my students most likely were going to be in at some point uh, before school started. So there was, there, here was the awakening logo on the wall in their math class, in their science class, you know, in August. And they did not even realize that that was something they were going to be utilizing in late November, you know, like early December. Um, And so it- I love it. You are a
1: genius, my friend. You are
0: a genius. That (laughs) is brilliant. It was so fun though, when they finally were like, wait, there's one of those in the journalism. And, you know, like outside of class time there- Flying around trying to get all these pieces, and uh, oh, what a joy! Those aha
1: moments when they have those, like, wait a minute, right? Those are (laughs) the best, those are the best when they kind of put it together. We've had, I've I've used the, The you know, here's another one is where you get, you know, when students make announcements for assemblies or that type of thing, where it seems like a normal announcement to anybody who's not initiated but the announcement actually has some coded material for the players that know that that, right? Like, so it sounds like- uh, we're going to be starting Latin Club next Monday for anybody, right? But but all of that is like when he says the word Latin, remember the third word he says after this, right? And everybody's like, all of a sudden, I'm watching the the student body and every kid you could pick the kids were playing because they all perk up as soon as they hear about Latin Club, right? That's, um, you know, that's
0: so true because I had that experience as well. Half the time you, you, as a teacher, right, you give the instructions for something, students don't listen, you get six questions of the thing you just said five minutes ago, and it drives you crazy. I had kiddos that were trying to, they were like developing a cipher for how they thought I had embedded like clues into the instructions of certain assignments. And it's like, you're paying that That, much attention? That's terrific. So
1: that is, because, okay, so that is remarkable because what happens is when you create a game like this, anything in your environment could be part of the game, right? Once they start realizing that because we're using posters on the wall, we're using people in our environment, we're dropping clues verbally, that their brains are lit up like Christmas trees because they're constantly thinking and overthinking. And And to be honest with you, sometimes a kid would overthink something and say hey was that poster on the wall a a clue to this and that and it wasn't but then he would give me an idea go man i should actually do that because that's (laughs) a really good idea even though i hadn't intended it and i can't tell you the amount of stuff that i got just from kids thinking that it was part of the game And then i thought that would actually be a really interesting addition to the game but what it what it does is it's a kind of an awakening right because you're we're so set in the patterns of routine right and the school is all about routine that's that's what we do and and you know we 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 have all of these expectations that we've been running through over and over again for 12 or 13 years And that we're on automatic pilot. Like when we're walking through the school halls, we're not appreciating every trophy in the case and the picture on the wall because we've passed that picture 400 times. It's dead (laughs) space for us now. The trophy case is dead space for us, right? But once you activate a game like this, Everything is renewed with the possibility of information, (laughs) and and whether it's something your teacher's saying, a reading that he gives you or she gives you, or something that might be on the wall. And one thing that I noticed in both of the games that I have run, in Blind Protocol and, and the Word game, is there's an incredible sensitivity to your environment that increases while playing these games. Which is which is really, I think, a, another kind of cognitive benefit, and these are the things you can't create rubrics for, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Charlie was unusually sensitized to his environment this term, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? But but it, but they're very legitimate kind of parts of your brain growing and learning and being aware, and and I find that that's that's one of the great kind of powers of these kinds of experiences.
0: Yeah, and I, I would couple that too with the thought of what that then does for your class culture and the excitement that that brings with in the five minutes when i transition as a secondary student from whatever class i was in before to walking back into the east side game and and let's be clear i mean they realize that this is theater (laughs) but but it it is an anticipation um that that brings joy before you hit the door (laughs) and and i think the power of that Towards learning, and and I think it's manifested a little bit in what you shared earlier, because I, I felt that the same things occurred. Where when I asked students to be creative within a structure where I've clearly modeled as much creativity as I can try to pour into something, they met or vastly exceeded my expectations. Right on exactly. all the work because they were in. You know, they they wanted to have the best conversations. They wanted to you know put forth their best effort into these. These initiatives because they wanted to not only do well academically, but to get the clue, to get the credit, you know, I I think they just felt engaged by the experience. I used to be that way as a student, right? (laughs) Like I I used to get in trouble because I'd get like from my parents because I would get an A in calculus and a B in health and my mom would be like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, man, that calculus teacher's fun, like cares about what's going on. Health teacher's just phoning it in. And I wouldn't do as well, because I didn't care as much. And I think there are students like that. And I think there's degrees, I'm not sure it always affects people's grades, but I think sometimes it affects your effort, uh, in a way,
1: 100%. And obviously, obviously, you've done something which is which is completely different than anything out there. You know, you didn't go to some website that said, Okay, this is how you, you know, your your ARG paint by number set, right? It's not like you, you obviously built something. And because it's so tied to your unique school culture right? Where every aspect of your game really echoed elements of your school that they know it's something that you've kind of locally developed, right? You've made yourself. And that's a huge effort on your part. And they do respond to that. Kids are wonderful. Adolescents are wonderful. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that they're disengaged, but 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 the problem is our system kind of invites disengagement, right? Like we're, we're on a mechanical holding pattern and we want them to be excited and risk takers and all these types of things, but they put in what we put in, right? And they, I totally agree. Like, I, I feel the times in my practice where I had been coasting a little bit, I felt that my students, the ones that kind of are in the middle are kind of going to take that cue and, and not necessarily put their best foot forward. But when you put ex, you know, the extra effort, you do something special, they definitely respond in kind. And you know, the other thing I should add for any teacher that would like to take the ARG venture, and it sort of uh, was spurred by something that you said, is that when you can, because this stuff is a lot of work. But if, you, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're clever, you can actually enlist the students to help you build the game. Uh, so an example is uh, the, the, the mission, the prescription system that I was describing earlier, where you could pick law prescriptions, right? And, and, or you know, creative writing prescriptions. Well, one of the systems that I implemented was that if you followed kind of, you, know, you completed three law prescriptions, then your fourth prescription would be to design a law prescription and based and now that you're an expert because you've completed three of them you have a good sense of what the types of things you can do for law prescription are and that was brilliant because after you know two years of running this the students gave me 50 percent of the prescriptions that i ended up deploying the year after and and what that allowed me to do is create a way bigger database of assignments for the students because the assignments themselves were being generated by the students Um, another example is I had students as one one of their missions very early in the in the word game was everybody had to bring an image of an asylum to class that they printed off the internet but they had to self-organize so that nobody brought the same image as somebody else, right? And we all know what they do. They go to the first Google hit, they print it off, <laughs> bam, homework's done, right? So what this prevented was they're doing that. So then every class they they coordinated through whatever means of communication that they have in, in their hidden adolescent world. And they 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 figured out a way to that they didn't repeat these images. And I would get a stack of all these kind of really grotesque and interesting kind of asylum images And then what I did was I put those in a yellow envelope and I gave them to a student and I said, keep this in your locker. And anytime somebody approaches you with this password, hand three of the sheets of this envelope to that particular student. Right. (laughs) And, And so what they were is that in the fine art prescription system, one of the missions was create a collage using the material that you will receive from X student when you use the password collage let's say right so if they accepted that mission they would approach you know joe blow and say joe uh you know collage and then joe would go in his locker and very kind of subtly pull out the sheets and hand it over and then he became kind of an assistant for the game and he was rewarded that was a mission that that person had accepted to do so you had all of these different things going on at the same time and the kids were involved you know one guy was dealing art out of his locker another one's creating it and so, yeah, it, and, and you know, there's no limit to what can be done once your mind goes in that direction and you start thinking about things a little bit differently.
0: You know, and so I'm going to play off of exactly what you just said there. You start to think about things differently when you give students the opportunity to own the direction or to give you those feedback or create those prescriptions. It shapes your vision as an educator of what's possible uh, and it just expands it and not only for the game itself, but I think for other contexts. Also, uh, there were instances where I, I wasn't doing a full ARG, but I could bring in certain game elements or you know, if I'm creating five different ways to do a particular assignment and and trying to offer some choice, now I might have three more at my disposal because Johnny, Susie, and Sam uh, in in an earlier version as part of the ARG, you know, gave me some ideas for what might be possible. Uh, And I do think that it almost has this kind of beautiful, I don't even call it a feedback loop or reciprocity where, you know, you're co-creating the course at that point. um, Exactly. For the
1: moment and for the future. Exactly. It's a collaborative work of art. That's exactly what it is. That's how I felt it, that we are all working to make this thing that doesn't have a defined, you know, sort of shape. It has some parameters. It has mm-hmm. a story, but but we're all working to create something completely new. And every word game was completely different. The stories that came out of it, the, the items that were produced, you know, there was no repetition. And what does that do? It challenges a fundamental element of industrial education, which is uniformity. You know, you're looking for differentiation. Well, this is differentiation. This is what differentiation looks like. This is what student voice looks like. This is what risk-taking and creativity looks like. And I have to say that the stress of running it and and the incredible, it was, you know, especially the first one where I had no template and I was making it up as I went along. It was incredibly stressful. It was incredibly scary, but I have to say it, it changed me. Like the person mm-hmm. that I was At the end of those 30 days was not the person that went in like something really bizarre happened where I can I can point at all these changes in my life that occurred after the first time I ran the word game and it made me think a lot about that. And it made me think about the connection between these types of events and ritual right? Because ritual is a form of kind of procedural theater in a kind of way. So there's a really deep connection between games as systems, especially these kinds of enacted games and rituals. And rituals are kind of, again, like storytelling, a fundamental element of human life that does induce change, that does produce change. We can can strip rituality from spirituality and just look at its kind of cognitive benefits to humanity. And I felt that there was something very ritualistic about running this game. There was something very, very kind of was pattern oriented and there were certain kind of rhythms to it that, that I felt were, were, were very ritualistic. And when I think about the transformative power of these experiences, both for the students and for the person who's running and designing them, I definitely feel it somehow taps into kind of a, the ritualistic element of, of human society and sorry, I will add, there's always been a connection between games and rituals. I mean, if you look at the Mayans, that whole kind of semi-mythologized story that the winning team would be sacrificed and, and that kind of thing, right? Their games, their sports were very tied to their religious beliefs and their ritualistic beliefs, and sports were played according to certain times of the season and so on and so forth. So there's always been a connection between ludic play and rituals, right? It's not necessarily a new thing.
0: I appreciate so much when we get a chance to visit, because (laughs) I feel like I get so energized by these conversations. I am so grateful to frame my thinking, you know, and so I'm going here because because I, you know i'm i'm evolving and growing and changing as a result of us kind of being in this we'll call it ritual or or tradition of you and i catch up about once or twice a year i feel like uh and go for about an hour it seems <laughs> and uh it's been really great to have another one of those those sessions for us to kind of just learn from one another and geek out for a little bit and for the person listening in to this conversation beyond just giving you a little window into how how nerdy i am and. As much as uh, I don't want to give that that adjective to Paul, but...
1: Uh, so. Oh, I'm nerdy. Okay. I'm okay. very comfortable. Yeah, yeah. There's no mistaking my nerdiness. I'm nerdy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I like this as a New Year's kickoff podcast because I think that there has been so many it's tough in that remote setting. It's tough with uh, pandemic learning and whatever shape it's looked like uh, for people to just kind of get their their rhythms down. And there's been a structure that almost, I feel like bordered on becoming monotonous you know, and, <laughs> and and might continue to be, you know, as we look to the spring semester, if we're just being realistic about it, right? Just to speak like, and, and I think that that is product of there being some limitations to video conferencing uh, and our thinking when it comes to teaching. And and, and a lot of it has to do with time to, you know, I mean, there's a lot of factors in it, but I do think that it's important to not forget that creativity is such a integral part of the art of our profession. And for us to have an hour long conversation here about what that looks like in normal times and to acknowledge too that some of those things, maybe, you know, you're listening to this coming off of two weeks of getting away from everything going, you know what, I, as Paul mentioned earlier, I want to invest more now because I feel like I'm ready for it, having taken two weeks off (laughs) to, to then remind myself of the joy that comes from the payoff thereafter and maybe really push into thinking about what's possible, whether that's in this upcoming semester or whenever things hopefully start up in a new normal on the other side of masks and plexiglass and video conferencing on a regular basis so i don't know where that kind of hits your brain but that for someone that's saying well where does this all fit in the context of the present moment I didn't want to start things off talking about remote learning. <laughs> I think that we've had a fair share of that and we'll continue to need, you know, maybe more of that as, as the situation presents itself, but more so just let's get lost in the joy that comes with putting in a good effort towards something that you can really call your own and, and share with your students.
1: Absolutely. That's such a good sentiment to start the year. I agree wholeheartedly. And, uh, and I feel that even online learning, I mean, listen, I think the, a big problem has been that everything during COVID has felt twice as hard. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. everything. We're all exhausted. Everything. Being a dad is twice as hard. Uh, running your day-to-day life, getting food is twice as hard. Getting from A to B is twice as hard. Seeing families twice as hard. And we weren't prepared for this, right? We're all just got kind of sucker punched by this thing and we're all recovering and we're all tired but i would say that you know even online learning if we had more energy if we had if we had better preparation if we weren't just kind of reacting i think that same cre- i i i want to kind of my next step my challenge to myself and i haven't done a great job of it i did not do a great job of online learning it was a survival game for me last term and I, I was teaching face to face the first term this year and I was so happy to be in front of my students physically. It made such a huge difference even though it felt like I was teaching in a hospital with uh, the mask <laughs> and the everything right yeah uh, but but now I you know I just feel like there there is untapped potential with Zoom meetings and and meets and all these things like the same way that in a classroom, there's all this untapped potential that is invisible to us unless we open our eyes and see things differently. So I'd like to, you know, maybe this year, hopefully I can, I can push some boundaries and see if I can do something kind of interesting to make uh, online learning better. But I definitely look forward to a time where we can safely return to, to business as usual, or I don't know, business as usual, but maybe a better version of business as usual.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there are going to be so many lessons learned uh personally and professionally from this season uh, that I'm optimistic on the other side of things that we will, gosh, so much of this stuff has become cliche, almost new normal, new normal, new, but, but I don't know what else to call it. So I'm going to just say that and fall in line with everybody else that that new normal would really bring some of the best pieces and some different thinking that's going to lead to innovation in ways that we would not have been able to step into prior to it all. Uh, And hopefully in the midst of that, ARGs or games or just trying to think creatively about redefining what school looks like as an experience for students would be really uh, something I would encourage folks to, to undertake maybe. Absolutely, and I don't
1: know if you were going to say the word "experimental," but "experimental" is a good word. I like yeah. experiments. Turn your class into a lab. Be a mad scientist and experiment, right? <laughs> Which I think is great. Uh, yeah, and I echo your your sentiments. Uh, every time I talk to you, I feel twice as energized at the end of our conversation. By the, you know, than than when I went into it. So it's always a pleasure to chat.
0: Man, feelings mutual, Paul. I, I sincerely, yeah, just really am really grateful for your for the time and the collaboration. And is there is there any kind of Final message, signing off with this uh, particular conversation that you would leave for educators out there. We've kind of talked about some of those at this point, but maybe as it pertains to games in particular, or have or we kind of hit uh, all the
1: notes? I think that one is never think of yourself as not being creative because that that's just self-defeating. Everybody's creative. We are creatures of nature that were created and we have creativity within us at various degrees. And I think it's always important to, to remember that. And you only become creative by experimenting with creativity. And, and I think ultimately is, is to cross-pollinate, right? I, I feel that you become a better teacher by learning things that are outside of your domain. You know, math teachers taking night school design courses or a music teacher experimenting with photography or you know, reading a, a type of book you normally wouldn't read, watching a movie that you wouldn't normally watch, playing a video game if you've never played a video game before. And I think cognitively, it's always beneficial to, to have your brain encounter things that are new or unusual that it has to process. And I feel that that exposure to things that you wouldn't normally expose yourself to saying yes, rather than no, and opening the door rather than closing it will always lead to more creative thinking and, and, and will help you see things differently in your day to day life.
0: Could not agree more. You're right. I so feel that innovation happens when things from different contexts kind of meet and are merged together. And uh, so let that be maybe at everybody's resolution this year is to find those other outside uh, influences or try something new and look at the ways in which that might speak uh, to the work that you do in this profession and bring joy along with it whenever you're able to take those joy is very important. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I stand behind joy. (laughs) For sure. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for a terrific conversation. I hope it's not our last on this podcast as it's, like I said, always been uh, a lot of fun and look forward to hearing what you end up doing next.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I hope to become a recurring uh, a recurring character in your show here. So a, <laughs> uh, you're awesome. Thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. and And we'll talk again soon.
0: For sure.